Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Welcome, welcome, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of your pastors, uh, one of the members of the teaching team. Excited to be celebrating baptism today. And uh, you can't see this if you're watching online, but if I go too far left, I'll fall into a tub of water. So uh, help me out. If I go too far left, just yell or something. Um, we're in John chapter 3. I'd encourage you to turn there. We're going to be doing the last part of the, the chapter 3 here after the account of Nicodemus. Thank you very much. And we are going to be kind of uh, continuing on and, and looking at John coming back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is different than the author John. Those are two different Johns. Let's not get confused today. But we're in this Cana cycle, kind of chapter 2 through chapter 4. And John is painting four very beautiful pictures. The first picture was uh, Jesus turning water into wine. And then Jesus cleansing the temple in his prophecy about his death and resurrection. Then we saw this uh, kind of picture of him confronting uh, Nicodemus as the rabbi of rabbis. And next week we're going to look at this beautiful account of the woman at the well and her conversation with Jesus. But John kind of stitches some of these pictures together and he does that with a passage like we have today where he is kind of continuing the journey of Jesus and and taking us back to John the Baptist who we saw in chapter 1 kind of pointing to Jesus and bearing witness uh, of Jesus. But we see this competition arise. And it reminds me uh, I had kind of brought me back to elementary school in building this snow fort, and we became competitive over at recess. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but, you know, you, when you're in elementary school, recess becomes just kind of this fun time where you just do random stuff. I mean, it just happens, right? And so we were building snow forts. This was in the days before they outlawed that when they realized that they could collapse on you, right? But the snowplows would come and make this big mound. And so we started kind of building these half cave, half kind of fort structures, and that we were building one, and this other group of kids was building one, and we didn't realize it, but then we, we, we both were kind of competitive about it, and we wanted as many people to come to our fort as possible. So, like, it got crazy. I remember, like, trying to paint pictures on the wall of our snow fort. Like, we made little benches so people could come and visit, and then, you know, it kind of got out of hand when we were, like, stealing food from the cafeteria to bring out to recess so that we could have, like, meals in the snow fort, um, and I think that's kind of when they put a stop to it. But there's kind of this natural competition that happens in many parts of life. And sometimes it's healthy, sometimes it's not healthy. And as we look at our passage today, we'll see how kind of this happens in context of ministry, and specifically John the Baptist ministries in Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 22. Bible that you brought with you, Bible in front of you, Bible on your smartphone. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now just jump down to to chapter 4 verse 2. John tells us just a few verses later, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. So John and his disciples are baptizing and Jesus' disciples are baptizing. Verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. John then continues on and he he gives us the rest of his narration here at the end of this chapter. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John picks up from the conversation of Nicodemus there, but we're going to be focusing on verse 22 through 30. And I want to pull out three observations that we can kind of apply and and bring into our life immediately. And the first, uh, first one is that baptism is important. Uh, we have several people who are here who agree with me already. Uh, they've made the, the step of faith to be uh, baptized and declare their faith publicly. Um, but let's look at the context here that, because there's a difference between John's baptism and the baptism that we're celebrating today that we celebrate as Christians. John's baptism was about repentance and cleansing. The baptism that we celebrate is a mark of identification and union with Jesus. How do we know this? First of all, look at verse 25. uh, Excuse me, 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Because what they're engaging in is a rite of repentance or purification. So repentance is when we know that we've done something wrong against God and we turn away from it and we turn back to God. And the main picture that they had in the Old Testament was becoming unclean. That's how they kind of described this process. And so they talked about cleansing, which was really this mark of repentance. And John's baptism was so important, it's prophesied in the Old Testament that this this Elijah figure would come before the Messiah and prepare the way. And that whole preparation happens through this baptism of repentance, of cleansing. Um, But we see... In Romans chapter 6, a very clear explanation in a picture that our baptism that Jesus instructed us is about identification and union with him. Here's what it says in Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so here's this picture is that just as Jesus died and rose again, that if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, we identify, we are united with Christ in baptism. We, we symbolize the death of Jesus by going under the water and we symbolize that resurrection to new life by being raised up out of the water. There's a difference uh, between the two. Being baptized into Jesus is an outward expression of an inward faith. Being baptized into Jesus is an outward expression of an inward faith. If you think about it, when we come to faith and we, we place our faith in Jesus, uh, as we talked about last week, we look with a, with a gaze of faith upon Jesus lifted up on the cross. That he is invited into our lives. He comes in, he changes 
everything that's happening in our hearts and there's this transformation that happens. All of that is inward. It works its way out into our behavior and our thinking and and eventually people can observe that, but it's a very inward thing. Baptism becomes then this outward expression of what has already taken place in our heart. Uh, there's, there's nothing that happens uh, in a true sense. It's not, you know, uh, there's anything special about this water. Uh, it's the, the faith inside of us that is expressed outward. Uh, that is what the emphasis is on. I get all sorts of questions about baptism, by the way. And we love answering questions about baptism. I'm just going to answer two big ones because these happen so frequently, uh, I just kind of want to address them. What if I was baptized as a baby, Right? Uh, if you've ever asked this question or know somebody or have gone to a baptism when someone gets baptized as a baby, uh, first of all, we just want to recognize that there's kind of different uh, streams or different lanes of following Christ. And uh, there's good people who have different views about certain things, and baptism is one of those. Uh, I'm just going to talk about unity in Christ in just a little bit. Um, so we want to recognize that people have different views. Here's, here at Epicos, we see from Scripture and understand that, that baptism is something that takes place after you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Specifically, the word baptism means to dip under the water and pull up. It's what they would use uh, to describe a piece of fabric being dyed in water. And so they would create the dye, and then they would baptizo the piece of cloth into the water and pull it up. And so I, I don't think that we can describe what happens uh, with a baby or an infant as baptism, because at least the ones that I've seen, they don't dip them all the way under, right? So there is a difference. And so we do something here called baby dedication, where we, in the same way, come with faith and we honor the gift that God has given us in a child, and we dedicate a child. But as we look at Scripture, baptism is something that happens after we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And so it has to take place at, at, at least in a moment in life where we can make that decision to say yes to Jesus, to invite him into our life, to look with faith upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death and resurrection. After we have that moment, then we express that inward faith through baptism. What if I was baptized but I didn't really know God? This, by the way, is why we do a baptism class so that you can journey and kind of ask the questions. You're not committing to baptism when you go to the class, but it's our opportunity to come alongside of you, help, help you grow in your faith, help answer some of these questions. Because something like this, you should really kind of have a conversation with one of our pastors. Um, now, the Bible teaches that there's one baptism, which means if, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and then you took the faith step of baptism, there's not a need to be baptized again. But sometimes we go through a process where we didn't really understand baptism or we were too young to fully understand it. Um, or, or whatever, and then we come to a true saving faith in Jesus Christ, and we want to take that step. Now, what baptism isn't is coming back to the Lord. There are certain times where, uh, unfortunately, we're pulled away. We wander. We, we, we wander into sin, and we walk away from the Lord, and then we come back to the Lord, and sometimes people will say, hey, I want to be baptized again. Well, God just forgives you. It's not another, you don't have to have another baptism. In fact, here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul writes, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace 
was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, It's this beautiful passage, but let's just highlight that one baptism. Now, sometimes there's a reason, you know, if there's not a full understanding, and we kind of journey with people through that. Uh, Often, uh, the other question that people ask is, I'm not ready to get baptized, right? Or when am I ready to get baptized? Just a reminder, getting baptized doesn't mean that you have your Christian life together. It's the starting line of faith. It's not the finish line of faith, right? So I've talked to some people and they're like, you know, I'm kind of waiting until I I figure this part out or, you know, until I kind of get this part of my spiritual life together. Uh, It's the beginning of that faith journey. It's not the end. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, Jesus commands us to be baptized, uh, to, to express our faith publicly. If you haven't taken that step of faith yet and you see this and it moves you today, I'd encourage you to talk to somebody uh, before you leave today about when our next baptism class is. We'd love to journey with you. We feel it's an important part of your faith journey. Baptism is important. We see that in this passage. It's part of the, the process leading up to Jesus. The ministry of John the Baptist was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's one of the two main commands or ordinances that God gives us celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper in, in believers' baptism. Um, second, I'd encourage us, let's do ministry together. Let's take a look at these next verses. Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, these are the people who are having the, the argument, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, and, and John pointed to him and said, behold the Lamb of God, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now just let's pause at that comment. What is the goal there? They are appealing to John to get involved in this competitive argument and they almost want him to take up sides against Jesus. That's subtle. But they're like kind of playing on all these different aspects in their comment. Look, everyone's going to him and they're assuming, John, you should be really concerned about this. Just think about that. That's Jesus. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Let's just pause there. God is in control of ministry, right? God is in control of ministry. We can trust him that he's good, that he's working his will. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He, he begins to make this wedding comparison. A friend of the bridegroom, he compares himself to the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Uh, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And John kind of turns this, this argument or this conversation on its ear and, and he kind of makes these statements about how ministry works and what this should look like. Well, first of all, ministry should be done in unity. As we think about doing ministry together, ministry should be done in unity. If we have the same goal, we're on the same team. If we don't have the same goal, we're not on the same team, right? Uh, this gets confusing sometimes in like seven-year-old soccer when you start running the ball to the other goal, right? Hey, whoa, 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 our goal is on this side, right? We want to be on the same team. But when you think about the church... In a very broad perspective, if we're worshiping the same God, if we're enthroning the same Jesus, we're on the same team. Excuse me, we're on the same team. Now, there are lines where we have to differentiate and say, hey, 
Uh, these people aren't following the teaching of Scripture or they're, they're, they're teaching something that is against the core teaching of the gospel, you know? That, that they're saying Jesus isn't God or that he didn't rise from the dead. Well, those are lines that we have to draw. But in this big general way, if we're worshiping the same God and enthroning the same Jesus, we're on the same team. And we shouldn't be competitive with one another. And so if there's a, another church or another ministry that God is blessing, our attitude should be like John the Baptist. Hey, God's in control. He's, he's blessing. He's moving. We, we should not have a spirit of jealousy or uh, selfish ambition when it comes to other ministries. There's, there's different churches in Milwaukee. We just, we just saw this uh, church plant start not too far away and many people from Epicos, or, you know, multiple families from Epicos decided to join the launch team. And we blessed that. We actually had them come to one of our campuses and that pastor was uh, prayed for and blessed. It wasn't necessarily a church plant of Epicos, but we are excited to see how God is moving and working. Uh, we should be doing ministry together. Let me ask this question. What about competitiveness even within us, within our body? Have you ever had this experience where you have a small group and then this new small group leader just kind of launches a new small group and some people from your small group go to that small group? What do you do, right? What, is that competitive? Oh, no, wait, no, don't go to that. Stay with us, right? And then we're back to the snow fort. We'll have better snacks this semester, right? Huh? This, it's a little close to home, right? As the Lord directs, as we want small groups to multiply, to flourish, that we would all be raised up as God calls us to lead small groups and see this expand and serve other people and open our homes. What about our campuses? Ouch, right? We're one church in multiple locations, but we have different campuses. It's easy for us to get competitive. Uh, we don't do it anymore, but for a while there were donut holes at one of our campuses and people from one campus would go there and they'd say, wait a minute, they get donut holes? Now let me be clear, this does not happen any longer, okay? There's competitiveness in big and small ways. And here, here's where this kind of comes from, is the Bible speaks against selfish ambition so clearly. Because if ministry is about me, or small group leading is about me, then my goal is to elevate myself. And we are on different teams. Because I can only win if it's about me. Now, let me just be honest. There's some passages that are very convicting to you. This is a passage that God had me wrestle with this week and do some self-examination. Where would selfish and has selfish ambition crept into my life? Where am I taking credit for a ministry that God is doing? It's by his hand, right? And so if we're all together and unified around worshiping Christ, then we go back to the statement that John the Baptist makes, I must decrease and he must increase. And this, this happens for all of us in all of our different areas. Ministry, I would say, should also be done in unity but also be done by all. One of the points of John is that we should all bear witness to him. And I would say that we don't really begin to understand following Jesus until we start doing ministry in some way, shape, or form. Now, sometimes that's confusing because you say, well, it's only the people who work for the church they are doing ministry. That is not the view of Scripture. The Christian life only makes sense in the context of ministry. We're called, we're sent, we're set apart, we're on mission, we're living for God. Let me take you back to that beautiful passage in Ephesians 4. 
where it talks about being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and, and the one baptism, one Lord. This is how it starts. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of what? The calling to which you have been called. You and I are called into ministry as part of our call to follow Jesus. Uh, just think about this for a minute, about the way that God gives us gifts. Now, some gifts in life are like a birthday gift, right? Oh, this is awesome. It's something that I wanted, something that I can enjoy. The purpose of the gift is to celebrate the person who's receiving it, right? And it's a, a blessing to them and, and a way to celebrate them. Sometimes, though, gifts are given that imply and help purpose, so one of my favorite examples of this is in like the epic stories, right? Like I used to read as a kid and it's like there's this hero on this adventure and somewhere along the line they would be given a gift, right? And the gift would then become part of their adventure and part of the end purpose that they were trying to accomplish and, and the gift is tied with what they're supposed to do. And in the exact same way, we have to understand that God gives each of us gifts, our natural abilities and the talents and the way that he's wired us, your personality, your passions, and then he says he gives us spiritual gifts. And understand that the gifts God gives you imply purpose. They imply a purpose and a calling in your life. And as you understand more about how God has wired you up and these spiritual gifts that he has given you, you must understand that each of us in Christ are called to serve, to do ministry. And we discover what that looks like as we understand our spiritual gifts and the talents and the abilities and the opportunities that God has given us. Each of us are called God gives us gifts, but they aren't for us, they're for others. The very act of receiving a gift from God implies that you have a purpose and calling on your life. And how should we do ministry together? I'm saying that we should do ministry together. How should we be doing ministry together? With a posture of waiting and listening. Uh, here's what it says. He makes this example about the bride and the groom. And part of the issue is if you're at a wedding, you're celebrating the bride and groom, right? If you're the best man, you don't make it about you. But he also uh, says this. He says, um, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's standing and he's waiting and he's listening to Jesus' voice is what he's saying. I, I can't be confused. I can't be on a different page. I can't be running down the wrong trail because I'm listening to Jesus. Because he's the one in charge of ministry. And so if I am walking with the Lord and I'm waiting and listening, I'll be doing what the Lord has for me to do. How do we do ministry? In, in an attitude of patient listening and waiting. Let's do ministry together. Baptism is important. Let's do ministry together. And the final challenge I want to pull out from this passage is simply put God first. Put God first. Here's what uh, verse 30 says, and it is a beautiful beautiful phrase that John the Baptist states. He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. And this is such a beautiful picture and summary of the journey that we have with Jesus. That it's all about Jesus. But, but sometimes you and I, we 
we miss that. We miss, as Jesus put in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. What is, what is our top priority? What should, be we, what should we be seeking first? The kingdom of God. That's another way to put this. We should be enthroning Jesus in every way. But our most natural desire sometimes in life is to increase. It is. Now, there's some ways that that's good as we learn and we grow. I don't want to tell my kids not to increase in knowledge at school, right? That would send the wrong message. There are appropriate times to increase in a sense. But, but you know, see what I'm saying? There's kind of this, this worldly desire that I must become more and more. My career must advance. My, my, the footprint of my house must increase. My car must become nicer and nicer. I must become more and more. And it's kind of built into our culture and the, the, the message that we get from everything around us that I must increase. And the Christian life actually paints a different picture that God calls us to a life of sacrifice and service, which is different than increasing. It's the life of decreasing. <laughs> and if you look even at the life of John the Baptist, when he says, I must decrease, what he means, whether he understands it yet or not, is he's going to give his life momentarily for the cause of Christ. He'll be beheaded. When we talk about being a follower of Jesus, we must ask, what path is Jesus on? Jesus is on the path to crucifixion and death, giving his life so that others might be connected with the Father. He tells us, frankly, if you're going to be a disciple, you must pick up your cross daily and follow me. This is the great upside-downness of following Jesus. That it's not about a life of increasing, although God will bless, although there are areas where we do increase. It's not about us kind of puffing ourselves up and pursuing our own agenda out of selfish ambition, but it is instead about enthroning Jesus Christ as number one. To, to put it simply, put God first. Put God first. What does it look like when we put God first, the Bible paints some clear pictures of what it looks like to put God first. But it often talks about worship, right? How do we put God first in our time? Well, every week we come together and we should set aside the best part of our week to worship God. We, we set aside the best part of our day, hopefully, to, to connect with God in the morning and, and prepare our day and lay it before him. God tells us to take the best part of our finances and offer them to him in a tithe. God tells us to take the best part of our heart and offer it to him in worship and affection and adoration of him. And sometimes that's helpful to think through kind of broad categories of our life, our, our time, our talent, and our treasure. How do we put God first in each of those areas? Uh, it's a story I've shared before, but it's this, one of my favorite pictures of putting someone first. And my wife and I were out on a double date with this other couple. And at the end, we were going to order dessert. And uh, they were kind of talking about ordering a piece of pie. And she said, I'm not going to order a piece of pie. And I knew what that meant. Do you know what that means? That means she wants to take some of his pie. And my wife and I have worked this out, right? If you want pie, you order pie. Because, you know, this creates conflict. If you want French fries, order French fries, right? Because otherwise, three quarters of my friend, you know, I mean, I don't want to get into marital conflict here today. But like, this is simple. If you want a piece of pie, order a piece of pie. But they don't. Only he orders a piece of pie. And when the pie comes, do you know what he does? He puts two fingers on the plate and he moves it around and he points the very tip 
of this beautiful piece of pie directly towards his wife. And she picks up the fork, and that's like the best piece. You don't order the pie for the crust and the crumbles at the end. I mean, you order the pie for that one bite. That's the best part of the pie, right? Why did he do it? Because he loved her. And he was glad to give the best portion out of love. And it's like in that moment, I like almost started to tear up, kind of not over their love, but like, oh my goodness, this all makes sense, right? Why why does God call for the the first and the best portion of our life? It's because it's the best way for us to show that we love him, that we adore him, that he reigns supreme in our life. What does it look like for you to put God first in every single area of your life? When I ask, is God number one in every single area of your life? If you're quick to answer, absolutely, I would encourage you this week to go back and analyze that again. Because it's impossible. If we have God first in every aspect of our life, we're in heaven and we're living perfectly, okay? And even this week, I kind of went through and did this inventory of my life. What about this? What about this? Here are some ways that I can move towards enthroning King Jesus in my life. What does it look like for you this week? to enthrone Jesus as king, as number one? What does it look like to put God first in all that you have, in all that you are? Baptism is important. We're going to celebrate that in just a moment. Let's do ministry together. It should be unified. We should understand that we're all called to ministry and it should be done with, with a patient listening to the call of Jesus And finally, put God first. Put God first. In every single area of your life, put God first. You know what's interesting about those snow forts? We put all of this time and all of this effort, but come spring, what happened? It melted. And I would just encourage you to take stock of all the things that you're investing into What are you investing your life and your time and your talent and your treasures into? Because if they're things of this world, it's all going to melt. And it's not going to matter. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we adore you with the best of our lives. May we put you first and give you preeminence in all things that you might be glorified, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, that it would happen in our lives, that we would point to you, that we would bear witness to you. Lord, I'm so grateful for the new life and the gift of new life that you give us. We're so grateful, God, for the gifts and the spiritual gifts and the natural talents and abilities that you give us. Show us our purpose in what you've given us. Show us what you're calling us to do. Lord, we trust you, we thank you, we praise you. And Lord, just uh, be enthroned on the worship of our hearts. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.